my Saturday was amazing because you're doing the sermon today. So I really appreciate it. May the Lord bless you. Thank you, Wilson. Wilson's such an awesome pastor. Can we give him a hand? Yay. <laughs> All right. Hey, I'm so excited about Easter. Are you excited? Yeah, some of you don't look that excited. Can we all stand to our feet? Can we do that right now? I know, I know. It's the morning, and it's kind of tough to do this. We have a tradition here, and I'd like to introduce it to you. If you're a first-time visitor, if you've uh, never been here before, we have a tradition. I think it's very appropriate that we do it because it is Easter, and for those of you that have named the name of Christ and are Christians, we're here to celebrate whether you're a first-time visitor or you're a long-time a person, a member here, we have um, not only a duty, but a privilege to be able to celebrate uh, what the Lord is doing. And we want to celebrate Easter, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? So what I'm going to do is, I do this all the time, I ask you, do you know what time it is? And don't look at your watch and tell me the time, the actual time. What I want you to say, and we do this usually uh, every once in a while, is happy family time. Because we're a family. No matter if you're visiting for the first time, if you name the name of Christ, you're a part of our family. You're our crazy aunt or uncle. You know, you're, you're somebody in our family. So you say happy family time. But today is very, very exciting. I'm so excited. We get a chance not only to say that, but we get a chance to say it's happy family resurrection time. All right? So I'll say, do you know what time it is? I don't know if you'll remember this, but you'll say it's happy family resurrection time. Okay? And so you'll say that. And I know this is a lot of instruction, but it's really important, okay? After that, I want you to go around, and I want you to share the love of Christ. Whether you hug somebody, if, you don't, if you're not a hugger, that's okay. You can give them a hearty handshake. You can do whatever. You can smile at them. But I want you to do this. Uh, one of you, if you would say, he is risen, and the other, if you would say, he is risen indeed. That is a culture of all Christians, that we affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you would say, he is risen and then the other person would say, he is risen indeed. Let's practice that. I'll be the one person. He is risen. And what do you say? One more time. He is risen. Okay, so do you know what time it is? It's happy family resurrection time. Let's go around. Let's share the love of Christ. Can we do that? Get out of our comfort zones. Thank you so much. Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right. If we can all come together, let's partake in the Word of God this morning. If you take your Bibles, those of you that have Bibles, turn to John chapter 20, the Gospel of John chapter 20. We're going to actually have the verses up here. If you didn't bring your Bibles, you want to take a look here. But in John chapter 20, we are going to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I am so excited to be able to celebrate Easter with you this morning. Today, we want to focus on the single most important event in all of human history. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. The resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah, is the very centerpiece of Christianity. It's the very centerpiece of history. It's the apex of the good news. Now, when we look at the Gospels, we see that they all present the Easter account in different ways to different audiences. When we look at Matthew, he is concerned about portraying Jesus to the Jews. And so he presents Jesus as the prophesied king. In Mark, he presents Jesus to the common people throughout Rome. And so he presents Jesus as God's faithful servant because many in the common world were servants. 
Luke centers his attention on the Greeks and their conception of the ideal man. And so he presents Jesus as the perfect man who lived a perfect life. In our text this morning, we want to look at John's gospel. And John's whole purpose is for the world to know that Jesus is indeed God. He is not primarily interested in presenting Jesus as the prophesied king or the faithful servant or the perfect man. He presents Jesus as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So with that in mind, let us look at the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. And let's see what the Word of God says about the Son of God's resurrection. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in its place separate from the linen. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Verse 15, and he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around toward him and cried, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Verse 20, and after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. We're going to look at three simple points about that first Easter morning. We're going to look at three profoundly powerful points that will, I believe, encourage our hearts and also transform our lives. Three points and we'll be done. If you're taking notes, and I suggest that you do, it's, it's, it's uh, very important that we understand these truths, is number one, we want to look at the darkest night in all of human history. The darkest night in all of human history. Verse 1, let's look at it. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Now, I know in the context this is referring to physical darkness, 
But spiritually, I want to share with you, this was the darkest hour. Now, it seems bold to say that this is the darkest hour in all of human history. There have been in human history many, many dark hours. But why is this the darkest? It is because of who this is. Think about this. I know it's hard for us to understand, but God is dead. The Lord of life has just succumbed to death. The immortal one has surrendered himself to mortality. Jesus, the creator, and imagine the implications of this. Jesus, the creator of history, is now history. Now, uh, this past Good Friday, we were able to experience, for those of you that went, we had a glorious time. We were able to experience a Good Friday service where we saw it enacted before our very eyes. And so we were able to go through the events of the Passion. And we mourned the death of Jesus on a cross, and we were able to worship, and it was just a grand and glorious time. But we were able to worship in the midst of that darkness. Let me ask you something. What makes up a dark night? Can I give you three things that we see in this text? What makes up a dark night is when a friend betrays us. The disciples had followed Jesus for three plus years. And in that time, they were convinced that he was Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one that was prophesied to come as their king. And so they hitched all of their hopes and their dreams and their ambitions on Jesus, and they believed every promise that he had given them. But instead of rising to power, Jesus is executed on a Roman cross. Imagine the feelings of betrayal that they must have felt in Jesus. Have you ever felt betrayed by a friend, by a situation, by an expectation that you thought would happen? That's definitely not only deflating, but that's definitely a dark night, isn't it? Not only that, but what makes up a dark night is when there's defeat without hope. Now, at the Good Friday service, at the end, we were able to watch a snippet of The Passion, the movie by Mel Gibson. And I know it's dated, it's been a while, but every time I see that movie, I weep inside and outside because of the horrific nature of what Jesus had to go through. And watching The Passion is so difficult because Jesus' execution was so extremely brutal. And that was the nature of crucifixion, right? The New Testament uh, tells us that he was beaten and he was scourged and he was put on a Roman cross. The Old Testament prophesies other things as well, that he was uh, treated uh, uh, terribly and that after uh, the prophecies, after, his cruci- after uh, doing all those things, he didn't even look like a man. Now imagine being transported back to the time at the cross. Would that scene have brought you any hope? I'm sure the disciples were horrified to see Jesus like that hanging on a cross. Let me share with you, all hope was then extinguished when that soldier thrust a spear into Jesus' side and all that water and blood gushed out of him. Truly, there was defeat without, without, excuse me, without hope. Now, what makes up a, a dark night is the third, when there is suffering without a purpose. Here we see that the disciples are hiding. They're afraid of being hounded and rounded by the Jewish leaders. And before they could endure it because of Jesus' presence in their life, 
But now Jesus is dead. So what's the point of it all? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. If Jesus is dead, everything that they believed is worthless. Everything that they did as disciples is pointless. And here we see that the situation seems to get worse. Let's look in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Things just got even darker because Jesus' body is now gone. Here, Mary and the others went to see the body for solace. They came to have closure, and now there is no solace. There is no closure because there's no body. You see, when we go through the darkest night, it's easy for us to focus on the situation rather than on focusing on Jesus and his promises to us. And let me share with you the promise of Jesus. I'm glad that the Bible doesn't stop at the darkest night. Amen? The Bible continues because the darkest night leads to the brightest morning. And that's my second point, that we look at the brightest morning in all of human history. Let's look in verse 3. And so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb, and both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the the tomb first. Now, we know from biblical accounts that this other disciple is the one who refers to him as the one that Jesus loved. And that is John, the writer of this gospel. And I think it's also interesting that here John refers to himself as being in better shape than Peter, right? He has more cardio than Peter because he gets there first, but he doesn't go in. Let's look in verse 5. And then he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, I want to share with you, because it's easy to pass this over, that this would have been a strange and interesting sight. And it's interesting if we understand the Jewish custom for burial. So what they would do after a loved one, a deceased person died, would, that, would be that the loved ones would take linen strips and they would wrap it around the body. Then they would take spices and they would take myrrh and aloes and resin and they would actually pack it onto the strip. And then they would take another strip And they would put that on, and they would put more on him. And so it was almost like the deceased uh, body was strips formed a cocoon. It was almost like they were mummified. And so imagine this heavy 40 to 60 to 75-pound cocoon over this deceased person. Now, this is what's interesting. The disciples noticed that the body was gone, but that this huge cocoon of strips were still lying there. All the strips and the spices and the resin were all still there. So if the body was stolen, they would have immediately taken the whole decayed body with the cocoon. It makes no sense that the strips and the head cloth was left there. How was this all left there in the tomb? I'm sure that's what they were thinking. And in verse 8, finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. And he saw and believed. You see, John believed something, someone didn't steal the body. He knew something amazing and miraculous had happened. Now, verse 9 tells us that they weren't exactly sure what to make of this. 
Everything didn't totally click then and there, but one thing was for sure, that they discovered an empty tomb. Now, the question I have this morning is, why does the empty tomb signal the brightest future for us as Christians? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19 says this, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he uh, raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have died are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. The writer of Corinthians, Paul is saying, if Jesus is dead, then there's no hope for our resurrection. If this is the only life that we have to look forward to, then we are truly most miserable. You see, if there's no empty tomb, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we're just wasting our time here this morning. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith. There's no Christianity apart from the empty tomb. And so because of this, there have been skeptics throughout history who have tried to disprove the resurrection time and again. Very quickly, I think this is important, I want to share with you <clears throat> some of these views or arguments. The first argument, if we can show it, and is still very popular today, and it's the earliest argument, is that Jesus' disciples stole the body and claimed that he is risen. We call this the stolen body theory. And there have been so many books by so many great scholars like Gary Habermas and William Lane Craig and Ravi Zacharias who have given powerful arguments for the resurrection. So I don't want to pretend like I can do that, okay? But what I want to do is I want to look at these arguments from Scripture, and I want us to see how the Bible in and of itself handles these arguments, okay? So let's look at Matthew chapter 27 at this passage, okay? Uh, then the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until that third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had, uh, that he had been raised from the dead. <clears throat> this last deception will be worse than the first. Verse 65. And Pilate answered, take a guard, go and make the tomb as secure as you see fit. And so they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, this argument is refuted because here we see the Jewish leaders made all the necessary precautions precisely because they feared this very thing. That they said, there's no way that we're going to let the disciples steal the body. There's no way that we're going to allow them to say that, his, that, that he had resurrected and his body was stolen. So we will do everything we can. We'll block the entrance with a heavy stone. We'll place a Roman seal on the doorway. We'll get Pilate to put a Roman guard, and a Roman guard at that, that time consisted of six to ten soldiers. Imagine the overkill that they did in order to make sure that the disciples would not steal the body. And by the way, Roman soldiers, their job, they were highly disciplined, and so one thing that they made sure was that they fulfilled their duty because if they didn't fulfill their duty on sentry duty, on guard duty, then their lives would be forfeit. That was common practice. And so we see that this argument 
is refuted. By the way, modern skeptics have abandoned this theory because the Bible has shared the disposition of the disciples, that they were in no mood or no mindset or disposition to carry out this plan. The second and the most recent argument that we see is that Jesus' body was not put in a tomb, but was thrown into a shallow grave where it was dug up and eaten by animals, okay? They call this the shallow grave theory, and it's very popular by skeptic scholars today. And it's popular because we know in historical accounts that common crucified criminals were always treated this way. But when we look in Scripture, John chapter 19, can we turn to that? Uh, verse 38 through 42. Look here while, while, while I um, read this. It says in verse 38, Later Joseph of Arimathea <clears throat> asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And now Joseph uh, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in uh, strips of linen. This was in accordance with the burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which one uh, had never been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, I want you to notice that we have an account that Jesus was placed in a tomb, and I want you to notice the specific names. These were prominent men. Number one, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. The Bible says it was his tomb. And then Nicodemus, a very important Pharisee that everybody would have known at the time, who brought embalming items to uh, bury Jesus. Now, why is this important? Because in Acts chapter 2, 50 days after the resurrection, Peter and the disciples are testifying about the risen Lord. Where? In the hometown of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and the Sanhedrin and where Jesus was crucified. Do you get this? Here we see that if anybody wanted to discredit and say that he was in a shallow grave, they could have easily verified this with two of the most prominent men in public office. You see, this theory is debunked. The third argument that we want to look at is that Jesus really didn't die. Can we put the third argument? And though he was put on a cross with the help of drugs on the cross, he fainted and he became unconscious and later, while he was in the tomb, the cool air revived him, and he was able to walk out on his own. Okay? We call that the swoon theory. But here, the biblical record shows us in detail that Jesus suffered beatings and floggings and a crucifixion where he would have lost copious amounts of blood. I was able this week to watch the Discovery Channel's uh, special on crucifixions. I'm a big history buff, and so I'm, I nerd out on all these things, and I really enjoyed watching where they showed or they rehearsed what it was like for a crucified criminal and what they had to go through. And so there were arguments in the Discovery Channel special about whether the death uh, on the cross was due to asphyxiation or massive trauma due to the wounds inflicted. And so I was watching this and I was learning from this. But one thing that I uh, took away from this was crucifixion was a devastating torture to the body. It destroyed of the body. It destroyed the nervous system. So much so that Jesus could not have been healthy enough to have been revived. And on top of all this, let's look at the passage in John chapter 19. It says, 
But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true, and he testifies so that you may believe. Now, why is this important? Because the soldier had to do this as a procedure done to ensure death. You see, the soldier was responsible for this criminal's body. And so he needed to do this to make sure that the execution was complete. And the medical report, we looked at the testimony. The medical for, uh, report confirms conclusively that Jesus died when it reported that blood and water flowed out of Jesus' body. You see, this argument is also discredited. Let's look at the last argument, okay? And I think this is the craziest argument, but I think it's really good when we look at the scripture to it, okay? The last argument is that Jesus' disciples hallucinated the whole thing. They hallucinated the resurrection. It was all a product of the mind's construction. We call it the shared hallucination theory. Now, it is true that when an individual desires to see something bad enough, they can hallucinate it. If you're in the desert with no water and you've been there long periods of time, you can hallucinate. It's what we call a mirage, where you see water where there is no water. The mind can hallucinate what they want to happen. But I want you to keep in mind that hallucinations are private events. Hallucinations are individual occurrences. They are not like the common cold that can be contagiously caught from one person to another. As a matter of fact, with that in mind, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Here's what Paul says. For I received, uh, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And after that, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So for two people to have seen the same hallucination is unlikely. But for 500 people to see the same hallucination at the same time is absolutely impossible. You see, it's recorded that 500 eyewitness, eyewitnesses account for the resurrection. You see, the four major arguments are discredited by the word of God. Now, I want to ask you, why is the empty tomb so important? Why is the empty tomb so significant? What makes this the brightest morning in all of human history? And you can write these down. I think this will be a tremendous encouragement to you. Number one, the empty tomb, tomb excuse me, proves that Jesus is great enough to keep all of his promises. Can I get an amen? The empty tomb proves that Jesus is great enough to keep all of his promises. You see, hindsight is 2020. But didn't Jesus promise throughout the Gospels that he would indeed rise from the dead? And so when you study the Gospels, you see that Jesus fulfills every prophecy, even to the minutest detail. You know what that tells us? That you can bank on every promise that Jesus has given you. Amen? The darkest night says that friends and situations and expectations will betray us. But the empty tomb promises that Jesus will never betray you. It gives feet to Jesus' words, I will never leave you or forsake you. It gives muscle to Jesus saying that I will be with you even until the end of the age. You see, the darkest night says there is defeat without hope. But the empty tomb says 
no defeat is big enough for you to lose hope. It brings finality to the promise, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The darkest night says there is suffering without a purpose, but the empty tomb declares there's purpose even in suffering. And it brings purpose to the promise that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, his son. You see, the empty tomb proves that Jesus can keep all of his promises. Not only that, but the empty tomb also proves that Jesus is great enough to defeat death. You know, death has always been a frightening and unsettling reality to all of human beings. And we can say that death is natural and that death is something that, you know, is inevitably natural. But no one lives that way. We live in anxiety because of death. But yet the empty tomb is Jesus' trophy that he has conquered death. You know, when I was in college, uh, my big thing was uh, I was involved in martial arts, okay? How many martial artists do we have here? Would you raise your hand? Represent? Okay, good, good. I'm not the only one. And in college, that's all I did. Wilson loves to talk about his volleyball and how good he was, okay? Well, I was into martial arts in college, and for that period of time, that's all I ever wanted to do. And so on my weekends, I would enter mixed tournaments, okay? I would enter taekwondo tournaments, karate tournaments. I would fight mixed martial arts guys. And so I would travel all around the South, Florida, Alabama, Louisiana. I'd even go as far as Texas to enter into many of those tournaments. And I've got to share with you, I don't want to brag or anything, but I, I won many of my tournaments. And I would get first, I know, I know, I would get first place. And back then, it's not like that today. Oh, thank you, thank you. Back then, okay, not today, uh, we didn't get cash prizes or different things. We got these huge trophies, okay? And the trophies were almost as big as uh, the person. And so those were the trophies we get, the first place trophies. And I would get those trophies. And I remember on our way back, you know, uh, from those tournaments, uh, on our way back to school, to our college, uh, we would take our trophies and we would just act like total fools. We were just so excited about what we had done. And so we'd go to the local restaurants, like Perkins Restaurant or the Waffle House, right? And we would take our trophies inside, okay? These huge trophies. And we would put them on the table and we would drink Coca, we didn't drink beer, but we drank Coca-Cola and we would eat our fast food or we would eat our food and we would just cause a scene in the restaurant and talk about how awesome we'd brag about ourselves We'd recount the, you know, the roundhouse kick that knocked that person out, you know. And I still remember to this day how I knocked somebody out. But anyway, I would talk about all those things. And we would talk about how wonderful it was, you know, how great we were. And we would yell out. And a Korean victory cry in Taekwondo was manse, okay. So we would yell out manse, right. And the guys I was with that was involved in karate, they would say bonsai. And we would just cry out and yell out the victory that we had. Can I share with you the trophies that we won prove the day and the time that we won that specific victory? Now, in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus promises that if you trust in him, you will never die. You will live eternally with him. Now, how do you know that Jesus can pull that off? Jesus points to the empty tomb, amen? 
He proves it by the empty tomb. Jesus points to his trophy, the empty tomb, and he gives you a day and a time that he conquered death for you. You see, when that time comes and death bears its fangs, the Christian, cannot, the Christian doesn't need to be afraid. He doesn't need to be dissuaded. He can say, death, where is your sting? There's no sting there. Grave, where is your victory? We can point to the empty tomb and say, just as Jesus rose from the dead, so will I. Amen? Christ won the victory over death. He is the first fruits, the Bible says, of the resurrection. And because of Christ, I also will walk in resurrection life. The third point is that the empty tomb proves that Jesus is great enough to handle your sins. You see, Jesus came to earth to free you from the bondage of sin. As a matter of fact, Jesus, Yeshua, his name means Savior. And it was meant because he would save us from our sins. Let me ask you, are you struggling with sin this morning? The empty tomb is a constant reminder that sin doesn't have control over you anymore. The empty tomb empowers you to live victoriously over the temptations, over the, over the lusts that so want to entangle you. You have victory over sin in your life. Are you in a dark hour this morning? Do you doubt God's promises in your life? Do you feel isolated and alone in this world? Do you live fearful? Do you live powerless in your future? Then, my friend, you need to once again discover the empty tomb. It is the brightest future that we can have. Can I get an amen? The darkest night leads to the brightest morning, which then leads, and this is my last point, to the greatest transformation in all of human history. These are, these are big statements, aren't they? The greatest transformation in all of human history. Now, I want you to notice who Jesus appears to first. Verse 14, at this she turned, Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Verse 16, I love this. And Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rebani, which means teacher. Now, isn't it fascinating that Jesus' first appearance was to a woman? This would have surprised the first century world that was reading this. You know why? Because women were seen as insignificant. In fact, there are so many ancient writings, Jewish and Gentile, that show contempt for women. Women were not the equal of men in this time. Women were seen as uh, highly inferior. So if you were to bring a woman to testify at your trial, their testimony would be thrown out as inadequate, inconsequential, and insignificant. Now think of this. The case of Jesus Christ's resurrection that we see was, first of all, brought about by a woman. You see, the first century person would have scoffed at something so important like the resurrection of the Son of God would be first witnessed by a woman. That's ridiculous. But let me ask you, and I know none of us feel this way today. Of course not, right? But if you were Jesus, who would you have appeared to first? Now, I gave this a lot of thought, okay? And if I were Jesus, I would not have appeared to Mary first. I would have appeared to Pilate first. 
And I would have done maybe a horror scene, right, where he was laying in bed, and I would, boo, you know, come out. i say, you shouldn't have killed me, man, you know? I would have said that. Or I would have appeared with this, to the Sanhedrin with legions of angels, and I would have said, I am your king, all right? I am your king. Or I would have gone to, uh, started a whole resurrection tour. I would have gone from Egypt to Greece, and finally, I would have gone to Rome to really uh, confront Tiberius Caesar to say, you're not the real king, I'm the real king, right? But our Lord doesn't do that. And when you look at history, you see something very interesting. Our Lord doesn't appear to any in power or authority. He doesn't care to prove himself. Jesus only cares about appearing to those who love him. Isn't that powerful? He appears to his people, to his children, to his beloved. He concerns himself with those who are committed to him. And I want you to look at this intimate interplay between Mary and Jesus. Jesus knows her name, and he calls her out by name. And I dare to say that when we look at this passage, we can insert our names in as well. As we look and we see, and this is the resurrection truth, that you may feel insignificant. You may feel like a nobody, but Jesus knows your name. Amen? He loves you, and his attention is towards you as the risen Lord. I want you to notice that Jesus, first of all, appears to a woman, and then next, I want you to notice that Jesus appears to the weak, to the weak. In verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, look at these disciples. They're hiding in fear. They still think it's the darkest night. They're all scared and confused and anxious and discouraged and overwhelmed. And in verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Verse 20, and after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I want you to see that Jesus meets these weak disciples where they are. He comforts them by saying, peace be with you. He assures them by showing them his hands and his side that it's truly who he, he is truly who he is. And Jesus proves to them that he is risen. He is big enough to keep all of his promises. He is great enough to defeat death. He is strong enough to save them from their sin. And I want you to consider Jesus' disciples. In verse 20, as Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. As they boldly go and proclaim the gospel. Would you put up the last slide, please? I want to share with you what history and tradition tell us about what happened to the disciples after the resurrection, after they went and were commissioned to share the gospel. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded by Herod in Jerusalem. Bartholomew was tortured and beheaded in Armenia. Philip was tortured to death in Turkey. Matthew was speared to death in Ethiopia. Thomas was speared to death in India. Thaddeus was stoned to death in Persia. Matthias was stoned to death in Jerusalem. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Jerusalem. James the son of Alphaeus was crucified in Rome. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Andrew was crucified in Greece. John was the only one who lived according to what Jesus had foretold, but was tortured and exiled to Patmos. Now, here's my point. Before, these people were scared and confused and anxious and insecure before the resurrection. 
And now they are bold and determined and courageous and confident after the resurrection. What happened? This is the greatest proof of the resurrection that we see. That here we see that all of them were willing to lay down their lives for Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Now you might say to me, well, people die for stuff that they believe to be true. I mean, you look at other religions, you look at other uh, cults, and you see that people sincerely believe something, they'll die for something they believe to be true. And that is correct. But you know what's also true? That people will not die for something they know to be false. You see, if they had stolen the body, if they had fabricated this message about Jesus, if this was all a scam, then they would have let go at the first sign of suffering. What advantage would they have in doing what they did? Because they don't receive wealth or fame. They don't receive anything for it. No, the disciples were willing to suffer even to the point of death for the gospel. And my friend, that is proof that something amazing and supernatural happened to them that transformed their lives. Can I get an amen? The only explanation of this transformation is the resurrection. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? It's amazing the transformation that can occur in a person's life because of the resurrection that we just talked about. But I want to ask you this morning, Christian, how practical has the resurrection been for you? How have you been able to not only comprehend this truth, but live out this truth in your life? Are you right now at a place where you doubt the promises of God? Are you at a place right now where you're having difficulty living like a honey badger, like Wilson talks about, moving forward in spite of suffering and circumstances? I want you once again to look at the resurrection of the Lord. And right now, maybe in the quietness of your own heart, I want to talk to those who have heard this message but you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jesus' intimate call is not something that you are aware of. That you cannot say, Rebbe, teacher, in an intimate way. You don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but maybe this morning you would say, I want the resurrected Lord in my heart and in my life. I want to commit myself to Jesus Christ. I've always seen Christianity as a ritual, as a religion, but I've never seen it as a relationship, and I don't have a relationship with Jesus this morning. I'm not going to embarrass you at all, but just so I can pray for you, would you raise your hand just so I know who to pray for? If you've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, would you just lift your hand up so I can pray for you? Amen. You know, uh, later on, uh, Pastor Wilson and I and our leaders, uh, Jonathan and um, Kristen, Joanne, um, Ken and, and Chrissy, we'll, we'll be on the sides. We'd love to talk to you about whatever God has been speaking to you about uh, this morning. And if you want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we'd love to share with you the gospel too. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this Easter morning. 
We pray that the truths that we've learned here would be lived out in every way. We ask that you would give us a victorious Christian life. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.